All right, thank you very much. Um, we did have a wonderful trip in the U.S. last week, um, eight, ten days, something like that. Um, we went to see the Ark in Kentucky, Noah's Ark, although this is Ken's Ark. <laughs> and I had a tour, Ken took us around and showed us uh, the museum, and uh, it's a wonderful testimony to the gospel. There's a lot of gospel content there. Uh, it was a great blessing. So thank you for your prayers, for safety, and back again. And uh, it's good to be in church this morning. does my heart good to hear you sing. And uh, what a blessing uh, hear all the instruments. What a fantastic job you guys did. Well done. I hope that you'll be coming tonight to the Christmas Eve service uh, once a year. Wonderful opportunity to sing together and uh, praise the Lord. And the next Sunday, uh, Christmas Eve, uh, I want to preach a message on the greatest miracle of Christmas. So I uh, look forward to that as well. I'd like you to take your Bibles this morning and <clears throat> open up to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. About 30 years ago, a moderately sized church in Toronto, Canada, claimed that it was experiencing a Pentecostal visitation from the Spirit of God. They alleged that they were experiencing more healing miracles than they'd ever known in the past, as well as the increased gift of tongues and being slain in the Spirit. But the single most prominent feature of what they called the visitation of the Lord was the fact that they were experiencing the phenomenon that came to be known as holy laughter. Basically, it kind of began, uh, somebody in the audience uh, started chuckling a little bit, and uh, when it couldn't be contained, it just kind of broke out into this full-fledged roaring with laughter, and it just didn't stop. Uh, it was contagious, and it spread through the building. More and more people began to laugh uncontrollably. I watched it on religious TV in America at the time. They just throw their heads back, and it was this big belly laugh, and, and that's what they did. Well, news of this spread like wildfire. Uh, many major TV networks made their way to Toronto in order to record what was taking place. Within 12 months, <clears throat> that church of about 350 people had 200,000 first-time visitors, including over 21,000 Christian leaders and people from all denominational backgrounds. They all came to see what God was supposedly doing. Since then, millions of people have visited this ministry from all around the world. And the church that is known today as Catch the Fire Ministries is an international ministry with multiple church sites, schools, uh, missions, and media ministries all around the world. This is a mega church, and they have a number of branches in Australia. When the pastor, John Wimber, was interviewed on the Christian Broadcasting Network about 10 years after this movement began, he said that in his view, what was taking place was just a preparation for what is to come. 
He said that what they were experiencing at that point was like John the Baptist coming forth to make the crooked places straight. In other words, that ministry's first 10 years were only a preparation for greater things, just like the ministry of John the Baptist prepared the way for the Messiah. I find it almost strange that on the one hand, there are many evangelicals who largely dismiss any contemporary application of the ministry of John the Baptist for whatever reason, and yet here is a charismatic movement known as the third wave of the Holy Spirit that embraces John's ministry as the biblical framework for what they were experiencing. And it wasn't just laughter. They uh, experienced there was jerking and shouting and shaking and people physically rolling down the aisles, uh, freezing. I was watching one speaker who just froze midair, mid-sentence. His wife was laughing hysterically next to him. Somebody described it as kind of a cross between a jungle and a farmyard. Yet they explain in their message that their whole thrust is to proclaim the loving mercy of God and His call for people to receive Him like little children. And they say that the laughing and the jerking and shouting and so on, well, these are just signs that God the Father is playing with His little children. Well, for the last few messages in Matthew, we have paused in our progress through the life of Christ in order to let the Lord use the ministry of John the Baptist in the life of our church. And that's because his ministry, although unique in some senses, uh, in other words, there are applications that were only meant for uh, the first century in preparation for the physical appearance of Jesus. That is definitely unique. And yet it's recorded in every gospel because God wants any person who opens up any one of the four gospels to be confronted with the ministry of John before they read about the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is by God's design because he intends that John continue to prepare people to receive Jesus Christ. So the question for us this morning is the same one that we have been examining for the last few messages in this series, and that is the question as to whether or not we have really perceived with spiritual understanding what God has for us as a takeaway from the ministry of this forerunner. Uh, I've referred to his ministry as being an awakening ministry. And along the way, I've added a few illustrations from what is called the first great awakening in America. This occurred about 280 years ago. And I do think it's important to note that real awakenings from God historically tend to be hundreds of years apart from one another. Uh, when you read the Bible as history, for example, you discover that sometimes there are multiple centuries between real visitations from God. For example, uh, when John the Baptist came, it had been over four centuries since they had seen a real God-sent prophet to the people. Of course, during those 400 years, they did have the Word of God. 
they were responsible to obey it, just as we are today. Uh, but God had not sent them a powerful, spirit-filled prophet who really shook the whole culture for over 400 years. Now, it's difficult for us to parallel that with Australian history, since our country is relatively young. But in American church history, no one alive has really seen a God-given ministry that's deeply affected the culture and really arrested the attention and changed the lives of vast portions of the population. In fact, if you trace it back, it's been, it's been well over a century and perhaps longer than that since there's been anything that would be a parallel to the first great awakening in the 1730s and 40s, or to a ministry like John's. Now, of course, there have been great evangelistic revivals through men like Charles Finney and D.L. Moody and Billy Graham, but I'm not talking about a localized revival initiated through men like that. And you need to understand the difference. A revival is when you have a spiritual renewal in the church that leads to greater evangelism and many souls coming to Christ as a result. That's one thing. I'm talking about the serious awakening of a nation. Awakenings happen in a larger society, sometimes even outside of the church. And I think it's a bit disturbing that we have to look back at something in the distant past for our illustrations, because these really are few and far between. In fact, I'm sure that many Christians are wondering, when will we have that kind of awakening again? I mean, why is it not happening now, given the state of our culture and where we are? Why isn't it happening now? Well, on the one hand, the question is whether or not we have prepared ourselves. Have Christians really sought the Lord on that level? That's putting the responsibility on us. But on the other hand, we also have to recognize that this is the sovereign choice of God. Uh, you can't work this up, even though men and women have attempted to do so throughout church history. There are revivalists in the history of America and the British Isles who attempted to work people up into this state, but it really has been disastrous as a result. So there is certainly a great responsibility placed on every individual here to really seek the face of God for seasons of refreshing in His presence. And I ask Him to do it for more than myself. But Lord, do it for my family. Do it for my church. Do it for my community. Do it for this nation. That is a personal responsibility that we bear as God's people. But on the other hand, there is this matter of bowing to the times and the seasons in which God the Father is put in His own power. You remember uh, that the Lord Jesus reminded the disciples of this when they asked Him, well, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? And He said for them, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has put in His own power. However, there are certain things that are for us, and we need to focus on obedience to that. So my concern in these messages on John's ministry is to help us understand what a real awakening ministry would look like. What would it look like for me individually? 
What would it look like for our church or for a nation so that we know exactly what we're asking God to do? And also it's important that none of us, I think, out of some personal dissatisfaction with life or the church would ever be tempted to follow a phenomenon that is actually not at all like the true awakening ministry of John the Baptist. So again, this morning, let's look at the ministry of this man. I want to begin by reading the first 10 verses of Matthew 3. Here's the account of a truly awakening ministry. It says, In those days, in the days when Jesus and his family were living in Nazareth, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. The next verse captures his message. He said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. This is over 700 years earlier. Saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness. And here's his message. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, very simple clothing. And his food was weird, locusts, wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers or offspring of vipers, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Notice in verse 8, John challenged those who came to bear forth fruit worthy or in keeping with repentance. So our message this morning is on a repentance that bears fruit. Repentance that is fruitful. Last time we looked at John's message and you will know when God is really approaching people through preaching. Because it will be a preaching that calls for a change of life. And because of how God made us, a change of life begins in my mind. It begins with a change in my thinking. And the first subject you recall that has to change in my thinking is about God Himself. That's why John's message was repent, because God's kingdom, heaven's kingdom, has drawn near. It is approaching you. Jesus is coming. And when He comes, He is the King of glory, which means that the rule of God is coming right up to the threshold of your life. So change your mind about who rules your life, who makes the decisions in your life, whose will is the government of your life, who is in charge of your life. Change your thinking about that. The government of God is approaching the door of your heart. That was John's preaching, and that is the kind of preaching that God 
has characteristically sent when he wants to wake up whole communities from their dreamy slumber. And that was the focus of our message last time. Well, in verse 4, notice, first of all, that John's lifestyle is then recorded. We are told in verse 4 about the man's dress and then his diet. Now, why do you think the Holy Spirit took space in the Bible to tell us that? Why are we told that he dressed in camel's hair and had a leather belt around his waist, which was very simple, but a very uncomfortable fashion statement? Why are we told that his diet was so strict and simple, nothing but locusts, there's your protein, and wild honey, there's your sugar? (laughs) Did God just put that there to satisfy our curiosity as to what John looked like and what he had for dinner? Well, the fact is, those details were noticed by people. In chapter 11 of this gospel, the Lord refers to it when he says to the people, hey, did you really think that John was going to come to you wearing soft clothing like kings wear? I mean, that would be totally out of place for a prophet like that. People also took note of what he ate, the fact that he didn't drink certain things. For example, John didn't drink any wine, which was customary in those days. Everybody drank that, and some of the people despised him for it. They dismissed his ministry. I mean, look at this guy. He doesn't eat normal food. Doesn't even drink normal drink. He must have a demon. They noticed these things, just like you might notice if somebody brought a big tub of honey decorated with locusts to the fellowship lunch. You might notice that. But the fact is, when you talk about how a man dresses and what he eats, you're talking now about his lifestyle. And John's lifestyle was intended by God to be a confirmation of two things. It's our first major point, so let's note now the two sub-points, because uh, one of them, I think, does have applications to contemporary Christianity. In the first place, I want to remind you that the Gospel of Matthew is intended for Jewish readers. Now, this was true not only when it was written, but it is also true today. This is the Gospel of God has written primarily to the Jewish race. If you ever talk to a Jew and you're witnessing to them, this is the book you would point him to because it presents Jesus as the Messiah to those people. Now, some Jews do believe the Old Testament and some of them don't. But for those who do, they would be aware of the Old Testament prophecies concerning their coming Messiah. They are waiting for him. There are Orthodox Jews right now standing before the western wall of the temple in Jerusalem. They are praying earnestly for the coming of their Messiah. Well, those Old Testament prophecies also foretold that before the Messiah came, there would be someone crying in the wilderness, someone calling out, make straight the way of the Lord into your life. So they are well aware that the Scriptures predict the coming of a forerunner. But what's really interesting is that the Old Testament also says that the forerunner will come like Elijah did. You remember even Gabriel the angel when he talked to John's father before John was born. He said to him, now your wife is going to have a child, and that child will be a great prophet, and he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Well, one of the things that was conspicuous about Elijah believe it or not, 
was the way he dressed. People recognized him by his clothing. For example, in 2 Kings 1, when King Azariah was desperately ill, he uh, was looking for a word from the Lord as to whether or not he was going to recover. And someone came to him and they said, hey, I ran into a prophet the other day and the prophet said to go back and tell you you're actually going to die from this disease because of your sins against the Lord. And Azariah the king said, oh, okay, what kind of guy was this? What did he look like? And they said, well, he had on a leather belt. He was a pretty hairy guy. And the king said, oh, well, that was Elijah. <laughs> so John's dress was in keeping with the Old Testament prophet, whom God said would have a similar ministry. He comes dressed like his prototype back there, Elijah. Now, the point of that, again, was really to confirm to the Jews that this was the authentic forerunner immediately preceding the coming of the Messiah. Remember from our last message that Isaiah 40 gave them certain things to look for. Uh, as I said, if you want to find the, uh, the Messiah, look for his forerunner. He's going to be out in the wilderness of all places. You don't go out to the wilderness if you want to gather a crowd, and yet this is how you're going to identify God's man. Uh, and then he said, you're going to identify him by his message. Prepare the way of the Lord. But in addition to that, you'll know him because he comes like Elijah. And all of this was intended to be a confirmation to the Jews that John was the right forerunner. His lifestyle confirmed his authenticity. However, in a much more applicable sense for us, do we realize that John's lifestyle also complemented his message. A man's life should really authenticate his preaching. Uh, John was called to face people with the most condemning kind of sermon. So God wanted him to adopt a lifestyle that had the same severity and sobriety that his sermons did. It's clearly a compliment like fasting. When you fast before the Lord, what are you expressing to Him? You're expressing your total preoccupation with Him, even to the point of denying yourself the most basic necessities in life, food, drink. Lord, I'm just totally preoccupied with You. It's the same thing in the Old Testament when people came under great conviction and they clothed themselves in sackcloth and ashes, it was expressing the idea that, that nothing matters, not even clothing. Only God and repentance matters right now. John's lifestyle was like that. I mean, you couldn't look at the man and think that he cared about anything except what he was preaching. Nothing else mattered. Now, I do want to clarify this point by adding that not every God-called spokesperson is called to live that kind of aesthetic life. Jesus didn't, for example. And the people noticed that as well. In fact, you remember they contrasted John and Jesus. They said, you know, John doesn't eat and drink. Man's got a demon. Jesus over here, well, he's eating and drinking. He's a glutton. You know, he can't please everybody. He's a drunk. So God doesn't call every preacher to follow John's exact severe lifestyle. But it is a clear principle, a scriptural principle, that people should be able to take note of a man's lifestyle 
and see something of the degree to which he believes and practices his own preaching. This is why God says about men entering the ministry that they should not entangle themselves with the affairs of this life. That word means to interweave. They should not interweave themselves with all sorts of distractions that only relate to this present temporal life. So the lifestyle of this man matched what he was going to preach to these people when he called them to a fruitful repentance. Well, that brings us secondly now to verses 5 and 6, which record for us the responses of the people to this call for repentance. This is quite remarkable. There aren't many details, but what God tells us falls into two categories. One involves the numerical, that's verse 5. The second response was spiritual, that's verse 6. Let's read them together. How did the people react? Verse 5, numerically. Then Jerusalem, and that was a long way from Jerusalem out into the desert in the heat. But the people went out to him from the capital, and you got all of Judea, all the region around the Jordan, all went out to him. This is similar to what John Wesley said about William Grimshaw during the first great awakening in Britain. Grimshaw was a uh, Church of England minister. He came to the Lord after he became a preacher. And Wesley said a few men like Grimshaw would shake the nation. He carries fire wherever he goes. And that was true for John the Baptist as well. He carried something burning within him. And it shook those people right to the core. They went out to hear him and, and what he had to say. Now, we don't have uh, very many secular historians from the first century. But perhaps most well-known to Christians was a Jewish man named Josephus. Josephus wrote the history of his people. And in his book entitled The Antiquities of the Jews, he actually says he was there when John was preaching. And he says that there were indeed many who came in crowds about John. They were greatly moved by hearing his words. Now, that's an outsider. Josephus himself did not respond to John's ministry, but that's what he observed. Uh, it's like Benjamin Franklin, who recorded his observations about seeing George Whitfield preach during the Great Awakening in America. He didn't respond to the message himself, but he said he, he stepped back and he counted the crowd. He estimated there were about 20,000 people listening on that particular day. Again, it's just a secular observation. That's what Josephus is doing. And he's clearly noticing that the people are really moved by John's ministry. You know, unfortunately, I have to say that in my lifetime, I've never seen any phenomenon like this, where great numbers of people streamed to go and hear somebody who literally slapped them in the face about their wretched, sinful lives. There are tens of thousands of people who are streaming to hear preachers right now and all over the world on any given Sunday who are offering them a false hope. Uh, I mean, they're doing nothing but pampering and consoling them in their godless living. They're only telling them that God only has love for them and He's going to heal them and He's going to make them wealthy so they can buy a sports car and jet around the world and 
God just has wonderful things for them if you just follow my message. And by the way, put a lot of money in the plate. But have you ever witnessed the phenomenon of someone preaching to people to repent because God's government is near and people flock to that message out in the middle of nowhere? I mean, it really is remarkable. And it's the same thing that happened during the first Great Awakening. I want to read you the account of a farmer who was around at that time. His name was Nathaniel Cole. He heard that Whitfield was preaching in Connecticut. So he writes about going to see him. Uh, he was outside uh, plowing his field. He says it was about 10 o'clock in the morning. And this guy comes and tells him that Whitfield is going to be in a, a place called Middletown. It's a little lengthy, but I think it's worth taking the time to read. This happened before the Revolutionary War in America, that long ago. Cole says, I was in my field at work, so I dropped my tool that I had in my hand, and I ran home and ran through my house and told my wife to get ready quick to go hear Mr. Whitfield preach. I brought my horse home and soon mounted and took my wife up and went forward as fast as I thought my horse could bear. And when my horse began to be out of breath, I'd get down, put my wife in the saddle, and bid her ride as fast as she could, and not stop or slack for me, except I bade her. And so I would run until I was almost out of breath, and then mount my horse again, and did so several times to favor my horse. For we had 12 miles to ride double in little more than an hour. From high ground, I saw before me a cloud or fog rising. I thought first maybe from the great river. But as I came near the road, I heard a noise something like a low rumbling of horses' feet coming down the road. And this cloud was a cloud of dust made by the running of the horses' feet. It rose some rods in the air. Now, a rod is the way farmers would measure things. They had these big sticks to poke their cows with, and uh, so they'd measure it in, in rod lengths. <laughs> uh, he says, uh, the dust rose some rods in the air, in fact, over the tops of hills and trees, and when I came within about 20 rods of the road, I could see men and horses slipping along in the cloud like shadows. And when I came near, it was like a steady stream of horses and their riders, scarcely his horse more than a length behind another, and all of them in a lather and some with sweat. We went down with the stream, and I heard no man speak a word all the way three miles, but everyone pressing forward in great haste. When we got down to the old meeting house, there was a great multitude. There was said to be three or 4,000 people assembled together. We got off our horses and shook off the dust, and the ministers were then coming to the meeting house, and I turned to look towards the great river, and I saw ferry boats running swift forward and backward, bringing overloads of people. Everything, men, horses, and boats, all seemed to be struggling for life. The land in the banks over the river looked black with people and horses. All along the 12 miles, I saw nobody working in his field, but everybody seemed to be gone. Now, keep in mind, this is without any marketing. There's no promotion, no media, there's no cameras. This is without giving any freebies away. This is without any health, wealth, and prosperity being the keynote. This is a man who's going to stand up and tell them, just like John, that these people need to repent. 
And if they don't repent, they are lost. And only Jesus can deliver them from the guilt of their sins and from loving their sin enough to follow it in a hell. These are the things that he told them and people thronged to hear it. You ever seen anything like that? Not in our day. But it does happen. And you'll know when it comes from God when a phenomenon like this takes place. Now obviously, you can have great numbers of people gathering, but the real proof of God working is how? Spiritually. Note with me verse 6, what it says about the spiritual response of all those people. It says they were baptized by Him in the Jordan. Notice this, confessing their sins. Now of all the things God could tell us, He tells us two things about their spiritual response. I'm going to reverse the order. And first of all, these people were prepared to do what with their sins? Confess their sins. Now, think of what it says in passages like 1 John 1, 8 and 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10 says, if we say that we have not sinned, well, we make God a liar. And His Word is not in us because He says that we have sinned. Now, I've never met anybody who wouldn't admit that he's not perfect. That's typically how people defend themselves. When you face them with the issue of their sin, they will say, well, of course, nobody's perfect. But that isn't confessing what God is charging you with. He is charging you with being a lifelong violator of His government and His laws and of the way that He intends for us to live. He calls that sin and transgression and iniquity. Well, John's message was calling people to change their minds, to stop saying, well, nobody's perfect which is really comparing yourself to all of the other sinners in the world. Stop doing that and just confess that what God says about all sinners, including yourself, is true. And you will know when God is doing a work like that in a large way, when you have great numbers of people who are not just raising their hands, who are not just moving to the music, who are not just shouting out, praise the Lord. And these things in and of themselves are not wrong. Don't get me wrong. But you'll know when God is truly awakening people because they're confessing their sins before Him. That's the proof. And apart from that, there really is no evidence that it really is God who is confronting people. I mean, you can whip up a crowd with a lot of noise and music, but it's a whole nother level to subdue them under the weight of a sense of their own wicked sinfulness. One of the pastors who was involved in that first great awakening wrote, how serious and attentive were our hearers. Now was such a time as we had never known. And then he quotes another man who was a minister in the area, a man named Cooper, who said there were more people who came to him in one week in deep concern over their souls than he had known in 24 previous years of ministry. Another observer, a man named Benjamin Trumbull, wrote, there was in the minds of people a general fear of sin 
and the wrath of God. There seemed to be a general conviction on the part of people that all of their ways were not right before the eyes of the Lord. In other words, these people hadn't seen something like this before either. It was a first for them. Uh, and neither have we. In fact, we see the very opposite of that. And the boldness of people's sin today, even in the church, and them walking according to their own truth. But what happened back then and what happened in John's day is exactly what happens when the kingdom of God draws near. People just, they just have this sense, they feel as if the eyes of the Lord are right on them. The message is directed right at them, right between the eyes. And they're falling down and confessing their sins. And I can make this initial observation, which is that people uh, generally are not shy about confessing those sins that they really are prepared to totally forsake. And when you, you know, when you're totally prepared to make a break with certain sinful practices, you tend to be quite open about it because of the change that is taking place in your life, when you're thinking, you're willing to put yourself out there and tell people about it because you don't ever intend to go back to that sin again. Sin loves the darkness. Sin is allergic to the light. Bringing it into the light is the evidence that God really has turned somebody around. I mean, that, you know, that was my past life. And now it's gone, and I, I don't mind sharing my testimony because that's not me anymore. That was somebody else. That's people's viewpoint when God's done a real work in their heart. Well, the second part of their spiritual response was that they accepted John's baptism. Now, the Jewish rabbis baptized Gentiles who were coming into Judaism. In other words, they baptized proselytes. And then there were certain ascetic communities like the Essenes down in Qumran in the desert who repeatedly baptized as a sign of their spiritual cleansing. John's baptism wasn't like either one of those, and I need to clarify that because there are interpreters who say that John was sort of imitating the rabbis, or he was imitating the Qumran community, but that just isn't the case. John's baptism was unique. For one thing, he baptized Jews, not just Gentiles, and then secondly, it was a once-for-all baptism. It wasn't done repeatedly. So what was the point of John's baptism? You ever wondered about that? Well, let me quickly point out that it wasn't a Christian baptism like we do here in church. And we know that because of the story that we find in Acts 19. I won't look at it because of time. But in that story, Paul makes a distinction between John's baptism and being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ as a Christian. So, no, John's baptism was actually a preparatory baptism. And it prepared people in two ways. First of all, remember that John was preaching that another person was coming who would baptize them with what? The Holy Spirit and with fire. So John's baptism, in a sense was a forerunner to that baptism. In other words, his baptism signified in water what they were going to experience later on through Jesus baptizing them with the Holy Spirit. 
You could say that John's was a type of what was coming after him. The other way in which it prepared people, perhaps even more significantly, is that when they accepted water baptism, the fact is water cleanses, right? We use it for that purpose. So when they were baptized in the river, it was signifying their desire externally that they would experience internal cleansing on a spiritual level. In other words, my whole body is being immersed in this clean water. That's what I want God to do for my heart. I want to be clean inside like that. I mean, this man was preaching about internal changes, right? A change of mind that produces real fruit in my life. Well, hey, that's what I want from God. So I accept this symbolic spiritual cleansing in this water baptism. And that's what John was calling people to do. And for a Jew to do that, by the way, in the days when only proselytes were baptized like that by the rabbis, that was a very humbling thing to do. And yet people were streaming out in the desert in large numbers for that baptism. That was a long line to the baptismal. Now having said that, I will say there is a parallel here to Christian baptism. Because Romans 6 tells us that when we are baptized as believers and we go down into the water, it's a symbol, you remember, that we have died to Christ. We've died with Christ. And in dying with Christ, we are now dead to sin. So, you know, you want to talk about a total change of mind when it comes to sin. We are dead to sin. When we come up out of the waters, it's a symbol of being raised to new life when we really live for God. So there's your parallel to a Christian baptism. But now I have a question. When people confess their sins, and when they go through a public ritual like baptism, is this the real evidence that they have genuinely become the children of God? Now that's an important question, I think, because today, if you ask somebody if they are truly a Christian, some of them will say, well, oh yeah, I was, what? I was baptized as a kid. And that brings me now to verses 7 to 10. And this is the section where John confronts religious leaders who came to observe his baptism. Look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, and by the way, in Luke's gospel, we're told that he not only addressed the religious leaders, but he also addressed the crowds with what he said next. And so look at these verses, and I want to call this the challenge of a fruitful repentance. All right, his lifestyle confirmed the need for a fruitful repentance. The response that he got seemed to indicate that large numbers of people were prepared to confess their sins and be baptized, showing the desire for a cleansing from God. But now, how did John challenge those large numbers of people and even some of those who had accepted his baptism? Well, it's remarkable, isn't it, that he addressed them in this way. You brood of vipers. That's going to go great on a religious TV network today, isn't it? Uh, and I say that a bit facetiously, but it really is a sad contrast because this certainly would not win any friends. In fact, this would be viewed as totally an unchristian way to talk to people today. But you know, later on in the Gospels, Jesus himself is going to use this same expression for people. 
Now, having noted that, I don't know if I have the liberty as a Christian preacher to use that kind of language because I don't know people's hearts in the way that John or Jesus did. John was entirely filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And there was a uniqueness, as I've said, to his ministry. But I also want to say that we all have, as Christians, a responsibility to think of people in terms of their true character. Because John wasn't just being insulting. He wasn't just being crass by talking to them like that. He was trying to shake those religious leaders by addressing them according to their true character. I think one of the hardest things to deal with when trying to win lost people is this obstacle of helping them understand that every religious leader or even someone who pastors a Protestant church is not necessarily a true Christian. In fact, he may be a snake in the grass. The Lord warned about this in John 10 when he said there's going to be many hirelings out there. A hireling is somebody who does what he does for what? Money, for pay. He doesn't have the best interest of the sheep at heart. And Jesus said that you'll know someone like that because when a wolf comes, those people are out the door. In other words, when, when, when some real persecution comes for the cause of Christ, suddenly they've got a call to go to another ministry. And then Jesus said, you'll know the true shepherd because he's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. But the New Testament is full of warnings about religious leaders who are fakes. They might wear robes. They might put on a suit. They might stand in pulpits like this one. But they have a self-serving motivation like the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. And in this case, John is addressing them according to their true character. And when he asks them at the end of verse 7, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, what is he implying about their destiny? He's clearly implying that these men were objects of God's wrath right then. I mean, they would need to totally repent and change their minds. So he challenges them in verses 8 and 9, and his challenge is very simply the very heart of this sermon that their lives need to show the fruit of what they were professing happened in their heads. If you've truly changed your mind, my friend, there's surely going to be some kind of fruit. And it's the same situation today. Listen carefully. My repentance and your repentance from sin must be genuine if we expect to escape from the wrath of God. I honestly don't know how some people can claim to be true Christians given the entire lack of fruit in their life. You must bring forth the fruit of repentance or you are the subject of God's wrath or the object of God's wrath. I mean, there's no in-between. Change of life, change of life is the evidence of true faith and repentance. The Bible says that apart from holiness, no one is going to get to see the Lord. 
Have you really considered the Lord's words in John 10, 27 and 28? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life. They shall never perish. You see that? You only know one of the Lord's true sheep because he's marked in two ways. He has an ear that hears, and he has a foot that follows. And apart from that being the characteristic of their life, there is no life. Now, we all know that the Lord's true sheep do stray from time to time. Now, we're not talking about sinless perfection here. But we are talking about the characteristic of their heart. We are talking about the direction of their life. They want to hear the Lord's voice. They want to follow the Lord. They want to stop their wandering and going astray. A true Christian is marked by the fact that when he does stray, he grieves over that. In fact, it is his greatest burden in life to stop straying from the Lord. But apart from that, you have every possible biblical warning to stop deceiving yourselves. Paul says in Ephesians that it's because of the things that people are doing, the things that they are practicing in this world today that the wrath of God is coming on unbelievers because of those things. So you better bring forth fruit that is worthy of you saying that you've totally changed your mind. Now, what he does next in verse 9 is address the kinds of excuses that people make that enables them to live without salvation. Follow this. He says, And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham... As our father. What's he saying there? He's addressing the tendency in the human nature to think that, some, that you are secure because of some external. Now, let me say that again. He's addressing the kind of thinking that we are all prone to in our human nature. The kind of thinking that says to itself, I'm secure, I'm saved, and it's based on an external. In this case, the external was claiming to be a descendant of Abraham, one of the chosen ones. That's something that the Jews claim to this day. They think that they're all elect for salvation because God elected Abraham, and they're his physical descendants. Now, you don't typically come across Jewish people in Sydney like that, but you do encounter this kind of thinking all the time. There are many people out there who think that they are secure and safe because they live in a Christian nation. And we're not a Buddhist nation, we're not a Hindu nation. Because they were born into a Christian family. Or because they've always claimed to be a Christian. Because they hold membership in a church. Or they have some other external claim other than a changed life that demonstrates a real internal change. So do not think to yourself, as John addressed these people, that some empty connection like that with religion or a name or a denomination or a racial heritage or even a good moral family, don't think that your external connection somehow makes you secure. It doesn't. Now John couldn't have addressed them, I think, with any more awakening 
next statement then, when he said to them, look at the rocks down there at the riverbed. You see those rocks, guys? God could actually make physical children to Abraham out of those rocks if he wanted to. How condemning is that? And of course, God could. I mean, what do you make our bodies out of? So it's no problem for God to raise up children to Abraham from the rocks in the riverbed. But the real issue is, do you have in your life the internal evidence that you really have come to Jesus Christ with your load of sin? You've totally changed your mind about your life. Who's ruling your life? And you've asked God to deliver you from that. And then finally, in verse 10, John warns them with a very sobering thought. He says, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. What does that mean? Well, you're talking here about doing something right down at the base of its existence. And so he says, therefore, every tree which does not, what? Bear good fruit. You see, fruit really is the issue in an awakening ministry, isn't it? Every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he's clearly warning them there about eternal fire. The axe of God's government, that swift, sharp axe of his government, could be laid at the root of somebody's tree today. I mean, let's just, let's just be real for a moment. The consequence of being cut down by God after He's given you every opportunity to plant yourself by the rivers of water, to delight yourself in His Word, to bring forth fruit in its season. The real consequence of not being a true tree in the garden of God, the real, the real consequence is being cut down and being thrown into the fire. Bow our heads for prayer. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I don't know whether we will ever witness another great awakening in the world today. I don't. But there is such a thing as waking up as an individual. And anyone who truly knows the Lord Jesus knows when that happened. They know when they woke up under the conviction of God's Spirit. They know when they saw themselves as God sees them, as sinners. And they saw the Savior for who He claimed to be. We were awakened. Now, do you know when that happened in your life? Do you know if that happened to you? You say, well, how would I know? All right, here it is. Does your life show that it happened? Where is the fruit? If you don't have any fruit, you're not truly a Christian. You need to come to the Lord Jesus. You need to repent of your sins. You need to change your mind about that. And then you need to call on the mercy of the Lord to you a sinner. And if you confess your sin, the Bible says He will be faithful. and He will be just. He will wash you clean, my friend. Now, if you are a Christian, but you've strayed back into some sinful practices, maybe for a long time, you also need to change your mind about those things. Stop defending it. Stop excusing it. 
Stop delaying getting rid of it. Just confess it for what it is. It's the lust of the flesh. It's the lust of the eyes. It's the pride of life. Whatever it is, confess and repent and ask God to give you a fresh cleansing of the blood of His Son. And may the Lord really give us today, individually, a true awakening. Just take a moment and tell the Lord what you need to tell Him this morning. Come to Him and look. If I can be of any assistance or if one of the elders can help you, please talk to us after the service. Father, we pause to bow before you as our God, as our Savior, as the one who opens the eyes to see our true condition and who then offers us a cleansing healing with the very blood of your Son. What a blessedness to know this truth as the world scurries around in darkness today, not even knowing what Christmas is all about. We have the truth, and we claim it this morning. And We ask that you would open our eyes afresh and wake us up from our sleep that we might truly serve you and love you and honor you and walk in you and bear fruit that is worthy of our repentance. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. So it is better to acknowledge Christ's lordship in your life voluntarily while you, while you can.